0: I'm not sure if you would file this under, well, Beeler, it's about time, or great, another podcast. Either way, it's my turn to give this a shot. This is BeelerCast. It's me, digital advertising veteran Rob Beeler, on his quest to understand what's next in digital advertising and media. Sometimes I'll dive in deep and speak only in ad tech anagrams. Other times I'll step back and take a broader view. I'll even step aside from time to time to let someone else take the mic and lead the conversation. Can we all just agree to have some fun with this and see where it goes? For my first podcast, I wanted to take one step removed from ad operations. Many people in operations report to a chief revenue officer. Some ops people have even become a CRO. So what's it take to be a good CRO? I decided to ask Warren Zena, founder and CEO, of the CRO Collective and Zena Consulting Group, that very question. It's his business to make CRO successful, so no better place to start. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and please create an account on Beeler.tech to keep up on all the industry-leading shenanigans we're putting together. On with the show, here's Beeler Cast Conversation with Warren Zena. In your LinkedIn, you have this great, great statement. You help CEOs build CRO-ready organizations. And I find that, I, like, I want to know more. So talk about that statement. Talk about the what sure. that means.
1: Sure, thanks. First, thanks for having me. I'm glad you re- it resonated with you. So I think, like, when you think about this idea of a CRO-ready organization, a lot of things come to people's minds. I've been having conversations, as you can imagine, with a lot of people about this lately. A chief revenue officer has a very unique opportunity in the next five, 10 years, mainly because the role is new. I mean, how long has a CRO been around? I mean, I think it's probably about eight years. It could probably be, Yeah, maybe. I mean, it may be a little bit longer, but really in the mainstream, it kind of started as this role, mostly out of the tech space in Silicon Valley, and then it became a much more ubiquitous B2B role, usually with tech companies, certainly in the ad tech space. And I I think that it's an interesting situation being a chief revenue officer today, because it's a role that, because it's so new, there isn't a lot of agreement as to what a CRO is supposed to do. And, And as a result, what ends up happening is that the role is frequently misappropriated. And it has massive implications on companies that people don't realize. And the reason is because if and when this chief revenue officer role is applied correctly, it has incredible value for a B2B company in ways that most CEOs don't fully understand. What it is that I I came to understand over the last 15, 20 years doing all this stuff is there's a couple of important factors that go on in B2B companies. And everyone's aware of this, right? There's an entire industry dedicated to this idea of sales and marketing alignment. I mean, there's probably another sales and marketing alignment product service webinar on my inbox every single day. And the reason that's the case is because it's a problem and it's not going away, right? I mean, you wouldn't continue to see this as a subject if it wasn't something people gave a shit about, right? And the reason they care about it is because it's really a pervasive issue. And what does that mean really? What it means everyone knows is that you've got this sales department and this marketing department and frankly, actually, entering into this more recently is the customer service organization, which is a big part of it, too. So you got these three called customer-facing groups whom have the most impact on their customers than anybody else in the company, they're the ones that actually touch the customer most, sales, marketing, and customer success. And they're not on the same page. This is a bad thing because you can right, hear, right. Geez, just by that one statement alone, you could already kind of imagine how that can't be a good thing and how any you know, CEO would want that to be the case and why it is they want it resolved. So it occurred to me uh, a couple things. One is, all right, so there's all these remedies in the marketplace to quote unquote, fix this alignment issue. And there's a lot of good ones. Really smart people came up with ideas. Why, why is it still a problem? And, and, I, and I figured it out. And here's the way I figured it out. So so have you ever gone on a diet? Yes. Okay. sir. Everyone has. Right. And, you know, when you wanted to go on a diet, there is more information in the marketplace today about dieting than ever in the history of mankind. There's no there's no ambiguity about what the right thing to do to eat is. Right. I mean, everybody actually probably knows if I went up there and asked them, they probably know exactly what they should do to eat properly. But but they don't do it. Right. So some do. But what happens mostly is people start a diet and then they stop the diet. So I I start eating right. I feel better, but my worst habits and my better, my worst nature takes over after about eight to 10 weeks. And I start eating, you know, donuts again. And everyone knows this because the missing component is a governing entity that's there to ensure that you do this all the time, right? Your, your better nature is hard to govern because you're a single entity. Now, Organizations are the same way. If I were to bring in a new discipline to a company, it may work for a little while if it can be implemented. But the entropy and the dynamics of an organization tend to fight against these fixes and they get back to those natural places because the actual problem hasn't been fixed. And the solution to the problem is an executive oversight, someone who's responsible for this, and that's their job. And that's what a chief revenue officer is supposed to do. A chief revenue officer's job is actually an alignment issue, to build what's called revenue alignment, revenue teams. So if if I hire a C-level executive who has the authority, the leadership allowances, right, the latitude, and the the permission to run the organization in a way that that expert knows how, you could understand how any remedy that was put in place would then have a likelier chance of succeeding because you got a chief person who's in charge of making sure they do because that's their job. But that doesn't happen. What happens, in fact, is chief revenue officers are hired as executive salespeople. Right, right. They come into a company, and the first thing they're told to do is go get them. I just told the board you're going to cost me a half a million dollars, and they told me I'm nuts. But I told them that you're going to make us a million, and I want you to do it as quickly as possible so that I can – Make sure that you save my ass because I just made some crazy promises to the board, and and I got to make sure that we're successful. And that's why I'm bringing in this guy who's either my my current head of sales, who I'm afraid I'm going to lose, so I'm going to give him a promotion and call him a chief revenue officer, which is very common, or I'm going to bring in the head of sales from some other company who's a real crackerjack and really knew what he was doing, and he's going to come in here, and he's do the same thing, he's going to save my ass, right? And what's happened is that the chief revenue officer role, as you can probably appreciate from what I'm saying, has been largely misconstrued. The role is improperly vetted and it's not prepped properly, but it's not as simple as just hiring the right person. A company has to actually be ready for a CRO and that's where the CRO readiness comes in place. And that means that if I don't actually first understand what a CRO really does and B set my organization up in a way that that person can then be successful. Those, both of those things have to be in place. And what that means, a CRO-ready organization is a CEO who understands what that job entails, the complexities of it, the multidisciplinary oversights of it, and that that CEO needs to arrange their organization in a way that allows for a chief revenue officer to come in and actually operate in a way that's going to succeed. Because if I hire a CRO to then come and do that, what happens? That guy is the enemy, right? I mean, you hire some new guy to come in to rearrange the organization. He's not going to make any friends. And I wouldn't want that job. That's a very difficult job, right? that's a slash and burn kind of a situation that that person probably won't last. And then somebody else will come in after him and clean it up and then actually build what that guy made. So he, his head was chopped off and now the new guy comes in. I don't wanna be the first guy over the hill. I wanna watch the guy <laughs> get killed before I go over the hill so I know where not to run, right? So, so, you, so it's really not a good idea to put somebody in that position. So what I do is I work with both CROs, I train existing CROs to be successful at the job in the way that I just described. And I also train uh, what I call aspiring CROs, like guys who are heads of sales who aspire to be one. And I kind of give them the bad news. I'm like, look, it's not going to be what you think. It's going to be this way. Now, do you want the job? Because if so, I can train you to do it. And then the third thing I do, and I think the more important one is what you mentioned initially, and I, I appreciate you indulging me in this long answer, is... Building CRO ready organizations for, for CEOs, so I help CEO actually create an organization that's aligned and has those al- has that alignment in its culture and its function, so that a CRO can come in and take it over and run the company in a way that it needs to be. And I know statistically, I have all the facts here. Companies that do this always make more money. I mean, it's it's like a it's a binary thing. This is like the way through the weeds, but as you can appreciate, uh, revenue obsession is that thing i expected of earlier that's the reason why we eat the donut because mm-hmm. i'd rather go make money right now than do something that's really difficult so give me a donut the donut is get go out and sell go make some money right and it's a short-sighted narrow view but it's one that nobody argues with because who's going to bitch about somebody going out making money right that's the overview of the entire idea of my business. And that's what I'm doing.
0: You hit on a number of things that are, that are key to me. So I can, I come from an operations background and you hit on a number of themes, right? That I, that I'm always talking about. And and one of them are the silos in which a company works marketing Sales, IT, I, again, I'm, if I'm thinking publisher-focused, I'm yeah. talking about editorial sure. uh, operations, and they all they all have this, this siloed approach of what's successful, right? And so you have that meeting, and you go, okay, we're going to launch something new, and everyone goes, fantastic. And they all leave the, the meeting, and they all go to do some other various piece of it but never cohesive. Right. And so that to me is the idea of having someone that, that, you know, again, like having the right leadership, the right organization. If anything, I think a lot of companies really aren't aligned to be able to operate in the digital space, especially, you know, from where they come. Right. And that's They're not, and the reason is would...
1: because you're hundred percent correct. And, and, and what happens is like, look, organizations are, are internal uh, little societies, So if I create, uh, you know, you look at any company, you know, agencies are particularly guilty of this. If I have a group of people who is responsible for a disciplinary component of a company, they're going to create their own little subculture. And that subculture is usually driven by the person who leads that group because that person is responsible for certain outcomes. And they're actually maintaining their job security based on the deliverability of those outcomes. Now, if the outcomes that I'm hired to produce within my group in any way, shape, or form conflict with another group's outcomes, it's unlikely that I'm gonna walk over to that guy and go, hey, look, let's figure this out together and let's work on this. What I'm gonna do is say, you're getting in my way of me delivering my outcomes. And I can't have that because I need this job and I need my security and I need my whatever I need, right? And this isn't because people are bad, it's because this is just human nature and organizations that don't take into account human nature and understand systems tend to end up with siloed organizations because people silo themselves. And so it's just not to demean human beings, it's to understand them. And so uh, what we wanna do is we wanna create systems where people have shared goals. So if marketing's goals are tied to sales goals directly, like they literally are under the same gun, then they're gonna be forced to cooperate, right? If I'm in a boat right, with right. you and we're both about to die, we're gonna figure out how to, how to paddle together, you know? <laughs> um, not, I'm not gonna throw you overboard because I need your horsepower. <laughs> right?
0: You you bring up a lot of analogies that require people dying and getting their heads chopped off, Warren. It's uh, mm. but but maybe that's because you're you're a hunter. That's right. Uh, not a gatherer, right? Actually, because uh, I went to I went
1: to Syracuse, you know. So that's it, right.
0: It's what happens? But <laughs> in the, in those winters, you you get to, you get the survival. And
1: well, look, I say those things not to, to be a little bit provocative and be fun, yeah, sure. but it's also because ultimately, I do. I, I am I am aware of the fact. That it's true that, that people are ultimately driven by by fear and they're driven by love. Those are the two right. things that really motivate people the most, right? Either I want to be accepted by everybody or I want to avoid whatever fears I have. And you know, fear tends to be the dominating one because it's more pervasive, right? Yeah. Fear it's is always on. Love is, is fleeting, right? So if I'm always in an operating from fear, those things show up in a lot of ways. I don't wanna really get into a psychological thing, but the reality is this stuff really is ultimately psychological. We can get into the weeds about how to run a revenue organization and how to set up systems and tech. And those are important things, but I can assure you if the culture is not in place and the people aren't set up in a way to make it work, it doesn't matter, it's like the diet. It's like all those things are gonna go by the wayside. So what I'm suggesting here is that CRO-ready organizations are culturally and organizationally set up for success And this person who's running it has the now an environment in which the medicine will take root.
0: Right. And that's and that CRO can, again, opt out of necessarily trying to make a quick sale to building that culture and making that decision. And then people follow following that. They'll follow
1: that. Right. They'll see the CRO as someone who's not on the front line trying to close business, but is actually someone who's trying to create alignment and synergies. With disciplines that matter to the customer, the organization is going to have a much bigger impact on that. People are going to respond to that differently. You know, yeah. a good CRO, frankly, should bring his own rainmaker in with him, not be the rainmaker. That great point. I love that. I love that.
0: There's. I have to, to share something that that popped up while you were while you were talking. I, I did a survey of ad operations people, and I asked them, like, uh, do you report to the right person? Mm-hmm. Right? like who do you report to and do you re- report to the right person and you know some people I mean, it, it it's amazing that in this day and age that it's still kind of all over the place right there are people that actually operations reports to it people in some places which you just can't imagine then some people at sales some people said cro and so forth and i and the underlying piece to it first of all that I just have to make the point is that someone referenced or referred to the CRO as just the best dressed salesperson in the organization. So, you know, I think that, that goes to some of what you said,
1: 100%, 100% uh, right? Correct. That is the, uh, that is the, that is the exact perception. And it's, it's a perception for a reason. Right. And, and the part of it that I was
0: able to kind of pull out of it and talking to people is though the people who said they reported the right person, the people understand what they do. Right. In other words, again, that's where that sales to CRO role, I think, is so amazing to sit there and try to to nail that to your point, Mm -hmm. make them successful, because when it comes to the fulfillment part, when it comes to actually delivering on what you go and sell, you just have to have that ability of control. Right. A CRO, in my mind, is someone who sits there and weighs out and goes, do I take this deal because I could just say yes and it's done or do I sit there and say no the sales salespeople have to go out and you have to work harder at a better deal. It's better for us. you got to think about either margins or you got to think about these other things that just
1: it's harder. Right. It is, it's but but you're thinking together. it's not just closing deals. It's actually thinking about the impact and implications of the deals. You know, you you make a great point about this because, you know, if I'm speaking to a chief revenue officer and I do speak to a lot of them. It's sort of a bit of a uh, sobering moment when I say, look, why do you want to be a chief revenue officer? Like, give me the real reasons. Don't, don't give me the bullshit reasons. Like, why do you really want to be a chief revenue officer? Right. And most of the answer is, understandably, well, I want, I, who doesn't want to be a chief executive? Right. I mean, that's, I, I'm aspiring to move up the ladder in my career, and having a CRO title is really good for me. And, you know, I want that level of authority. I want that level of seniority. Good. They're all good reasons, by the way. They're not bad reasons. But what do you want to do? OK, so you have all that stuff, right? You got the C-level title and you got this authority. And, you know, there's a PR piece that goes out that says Bob Stevenson was just hired as the chief revenue officer of, you know, Blabo, you know, Inc. Right. And, you know, yeah, everyone yeah, pat you yeah. on the back and it's awesome. It's good. You know. But n- now what? Like, like what do you want to do? Are you now want to be like you said, Do you want to be the best dressed salesperson in the company because you're like you've got this sort of challenge that you want to have or you're going to be the guy who's. All the targets are on your back and you want to make the sales because after all the glory is done, you have to ask yourself, what really does a chief revenue officer do? Not what does a chief revenue officer do in today's world, but what should a chief revenue officer do? How do you think about that job? And this is the conversation that gets really interesting because then it starts to morph into the things you just said so well, Rob. You know, you're just going to go close a deal or are you going to think about the implications of the deal and the way the deal is structured and the way that customer service gets involved in that deal and the way marketing impacts that deal? And how are you going to make sure those things are all working together? In other words, as this conversation gets deeper and I start discussing this with them, they start to get a better understanding of what the role is and one of two things happen. Half of them go, that's awesome. That's even more exciting to me. I have a much more opportunity to make a bigger impact at the company. And I really want to develop other aspects of my skill sets. And it would be great for me to have a higher level strategic viewpoint on things. The other half are like, I don't want to do that. I want to sell. I'm a killer. I'm a killer. I've been making a caseload of money selling. I I want a number on my back. That's what I do for a living. And so those guys, unfortunately, the ones that ironically say they don't want the job, they're the ones that are mostly being hired today. Because they're the ones that the CEOs are looking for. They want the guy who can go out and kill it. But as you and I seem to be in agreement here, we both know now that that's not the right decision. It's not the right way to hire somebody. They should just hire a head of sales. And so I'm trying to right the ship in a way because the dark secret that I'm uncovering here is that the bigger problem isn't that you're not getting sales, it's because your company is misaligned. And as long as your company is misaligned, it doesn't matter how much money your company makes. Customers are going to leave you. Your lifetime value or your customers is not going to last. The customer experience is going to be fragmented. You're going to have warring factions between all these different groups in your company, which isn't good for culture. People leave those companies. They don't stay. I don't want to stay at a company where sales hates my guts or marketing hates my guts. I don't want to work there, right? Right. So, you know, you want a company that attracts people like has a collaborative environment where sales and marketing are both valued equally and customer success has a role in how they grow the customer. And you can even hear, when I'm talking about this, how that's a much more desirable place to be. So I'm trying to like lead organizations to understand that and get through the pain that they have to get through to find that nirvana at the end of it. And it's not easy, but that's my mission.
0: Yeah, I I love it. And I, and I was just going to say one other additional point to it, right, is there's nothing like morale when it's such a sales-driven organization. Now, you know, the thing that I try to tell operations people is, sorry, you went in operations to get away from sales. Guess what? Everyone's in sales. (laughs) We're we're all do some, whether you're trying to persuade someone the way to do it right, or you're just a part of an organization. But a sales-driven organization to the extreme is one in which someone sells and then everyone has to react and, and, and you're in it, it's a low morale. I actually think one of the things that I'm I'm gonna see more conversations around is is margin based commissions and and really
1: starting to understand and yeah. understand that approach. Co- compensation plans need to be rethought for sure. I mean I, I don't think and I, it's gonna be a lot of people are gonna really like disagree with this, but I just don't think that hanging these massive quotas on the backs of salespeople is a really good idea anymore because it goes right to my point, which is if I tell all my salespeople that they're fighting for this quarterly quota, what's their behavior going to be? They're going to make really very like aggressive decisions and they're going to speak to customers in a very specific way. When I was a buyer of um, t- technical services, when I was at the agencies, I was the decision maker. You know, i get pinched five times a day and it was a really amazing opportunity to watch this in process. You could see... They're, they're all, all they're worried about is whether I nod my head or not or whether I shake my head or not because they're, they're looking at me like this guy can make my quarter or not as opposed to I can solve his problem or not, right? Now, if these guys were motivated differently, they likely would be thinking more about whether I'm the right customer for them or not or whether I'm the right fit for their product or not or whether this is going to solve my problem or not, as opposed to whether they can get the deal closed so they can go back and tell their boss they got had a good meeting today. And, you know, it's just the wrong, it's the wrong motivation, the wrong behavior is being enforced by this. And I think that it's part of the misalignment problem is that the revenue is done at the expense of the organization. It's a mm-hmm. weird thing to think about. It's almost like saying eating is being done at the expense of my nutrition. Right. But that is exactly what's happening. We are all eating in expense of our nutrition. There's no question about that we are. So so how do you change that? It's it's a different it's almost like I mean, I'm kind of formulating this as we speak here. I'm kinda like I wanna almost create a organizational diet plan for companies so they are more nutritious in the way that they consume their own customer relationships, something like that.
0: Yeah, I, I think of it in terms of maturity, right? Yeah. And again, it goes to eating as well, right? It's uh, you know, at some point, my kids will start eating broccoli. Uh, they won't do it because I told them to, but at some point, they will, right? They'll get it that that they feel better when they get there as opposed to to eating eating junk food, right? And there's a there's a part there as well, right? That sits there and says, if we're aligned as an organization, we can say no. Right, we don't have to take every deal that we could possibly get, and that changes how salespeople go out and go out and sell. One of the things that uh, you know, obviously, uh, with with COVID, with the with the pandemic, has had an obvious impact on sales, and almost some of the things that you've talked about, right, is instead of the "Hey, I'll I'll see you at some place and we'll just kind of catch up and and the the networking of the conferences and so forth, now it's very much getting into someone's Zoom world, if you will, and, and doing that. How do you think that this has affected sales overall and what might be an area that, that people need to kind of think about as they, as they uh, get through this and someday we'll get back to normal?
1: Look, the, some of the stuff is obvious. I mean, I, I could speak to things everyone would just like go no, no crap, they'll still nod their heads. It's, I mean, one thing there's good and bad, one, one good thing everyone knows is that it's a little bit easier to get people in a meeting now because they just got to turn on their computer, right? Right. Um, you know, we, we don't realize how much we used, you know, physical meetings as a barrier to get one, right? I mean, it's easy for me to say, it's so different than saying like, I'm in the shower. If you're in the shower, no one's going to bother you. If, if I tell people like, I got to get to the meeting, you know, it's uptown or whatever, it throws in a lot of reasonable ways for you to avoid having to meet somebody because those things are not going to be argued, right? And I think that we've set it up that when we're trying to meet people live, we've encumbered ourselves a bit because we've made it harder to get together. And it's made certain decision makers more elusive and more justifiably so. Whereas now I can go, dude, give me a break. Like open your laptop. You've got 10 minutes, right? And I think everyone kind of knows that. And in a way they kind of like it too. Like, I don't think that there's this sense that executives feel like outed. I think they're more like, you know, this is actually better. I can just open my computer and I can meet a guy for 10 minutes and I can close my laptop and it's over with. So in a way it's afforded us ability to get in front of people more. And and that's a good thing. I've I've met with a lot. I can meet with almost anybody now. It's hard for me to someone to say no, unless they're just busy, which I get. But in terms of the actual effort, come on. You know, so so that's a good thing. The bad thing is that everyone knows too, is the physical meeting is still of higher value, right? I, I like, you know, when you get together with somebody and you can smell their aftershave and you can sit down with them and have a cup of coffee, you know, we, we don't fully appreciate the um, depth of the exchange of relationship and data that takes place in a situation like that. That's really yeah. real. And, and I, and I, think that that's not going to go away. I think we're still going to need that. And I'm, I'm confident that that'll come back because people are always going to gravitate towards that. We're not, we're not made to be sitting in rooms alone. We're not, we're designed to be with each other and stuff. And I think that's going to come back, but it'll be different. And from a salesperson's perspective, it's an interesting thing I was thinking about. If, so I think about how many companies in the last three or four maybe five years, what they did was they were like, you know what? A smart tactic for us to win in the marketplace. We really don't have as much of a differentiated product as we'd like. We're somewhat inside of like a bit of a, a commodity product. What we do have is we have really, really great T and E budgets. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, my strategy is going to be is I'm going to take all my agency decision makers out to ball games and strip clubs and, you know, bars, and I'm going to take them all to CES. I'm going to fly them down to the masters and they're going to love me because I'm doing all this stuff for them. And by the way, it works. I, I mean, someone took me to the masters and I bought from them. Why wouldn't <laughs> you? So what I mean is that, that didn't have anything to do with their product. It had to do with the way they went to market. That's done. So, if you have a product that your strategy has been entertainment and you know, events, your business model has completely been upended, and you're gonna have to think about now. My salespeople have to think about now actually answering objections and actually figuring out like why the product is better and how to solve problems because I can't take them to the ball game anymore. And you know, a lot of these guys are left crippled because they were never trained. How to actually like consult with people? They're, they're, they're really just like guys who, who you know. And frankly, you know this. I i I'd be a little mildly politically incorrect here, but you know, you hire a bunch of very attractive salesmen and saleswomen, and you know it works. But these are strategies that are no longer going to be working anymore. And I think that's a good thing. It's not a bad yes. thing. And and I think that what's going to happen is now we've been squeezed. So salespeople now have to really think much, much, much more about the jobs they take because I'm going to take a job and I don't have those opportunities and I have to think about the product I'm going to be selling. And is the product one that really has value? Is it something that I think that people want to buy? And is it something that I'm getting trained properly in order to know how to sell? Is it something that has a competitive value in the marketplace that I can execute against? And if not, you know what? This environment's not suited for anything other than that today. So I think there's being a bit of a weeding out for things. And I think that's really, really good. You could probably hear a lot more about products that survive because they can, as opposed to ones that just hung on because you know they did a good job at the CES product thing last year, you know? So right. those are interesting things I think they're happening with salespeople. Have to think salespeople have to think a little bit more about what they're doing because of those things. And if they if their career has been predicated on the fact they've been lucky to work for companies that have really big budgets to spend money, they need to think about their skill set. One of
0: the things you, you hit on in the beginning of that resonates with me is, again, we're all available. And I think one of the things is that it leads to if you don't really want to meet with someone, you have to say no, because you can't use, to your point, that physical barrier. Of, You're
1: right. Just to you right? actually have to, like, say no to them now.
0: And that's so from, from both perspectives, that's actually better. Right.
1: Because it, it means totally great.
0: I, I know I've strung people along for a long time gone. Like I, I'm just, I, I can't, uh, you know, now I don't have that, but I also think there's a part where we've, we've probably, because we, you know, and again, I know how much you traveled and how much oh I God. traveled and yeah. I, right. And how many, how many hours back we got again, to be with family to yeah. work and all fantastic. I think, I think we're getting to a point where we're starting to see exactly that. That's still a finite number. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you have to sit there and really kind of manage that. And then that when you that's when you go, you know, what 10 minutes worth my time, I can suss something out, whether there's a there there and then move on is much better than sitting there going like, I'm just going to take all of these calls and it's infinite and whatever that that's that's a thing. Again, I think people learn is the value of time, which is really the ultimate, you know, the ultimate 100
1: percent. I think those things are true. And I, I, I think that the, you make a really good point about people having to be more honest because they don't have the same latitude to make excuses that they used to anymore. And I I do, that's a good thing. And I also agree with you that, look, I'm, everyone's thinking this way now. There's isn't anybody that's thinking, wow, I can work from anywhere. Why am I living where I'm living anymore? And those are good things, right? The the bad stuff is we kind of don't know when work ends and work begins. Right. So, you know, people are working all day and they're kind of like in this kind of endless loop where Defi- going to work every morning and getting up physically, and going to an office and coming home within a day, it creates a natural boundary between two worlds. Now there is no boundary between those worlds and we're left to have to manage time in different ways. And I think that the burnout is really bad. I'm seeing it a lot, I'm seeing it with myself. And I'm seeing it's like, uh, this is the perfect environment for a workaholic. You know, it's almost like, you know, like an alcoholic go work in a bar. You know, it's like someone who wants to work all the time. Do You just work all the time now. And do you have an excuse? What am I going to do? I'm at work and you know, leave me alone. And that's not, a, that's not, a, <laughs> it's, yeah. not it's, it's not a good thing. So we need to have some consciousness where we think, all right, you know, it's time for us to end this conversation. So this person and myself can kind of end the day and switch back into another mode because we have to do that for each other. And and I think there needs to be some collective understanding between each other. The sales cycle has changed, right? I mean, remember it used to be like you had to call somebody at a certain time or it was the right time to get with somebody and all those other cadences. This is like nonsense anymore. Now it's like whenever, you know? And, And I think like a salesperson's uh world has to be changed a bit like what is appropriate like like there are there are still things that sales people need to think about and uh the, the the other one last point i make about sales people in the role today is um group meetings so i used to be able to go to an agency and meet with 10 people in a room do like a live presentation I mean, it's a kind of a weird thing now, you know, I mean, I trying to get everybody to manage their schedules and all log in wherever they are. It actually, in a weird way, that's harder than getting everybody to go to one room together, as weird as it may seem, as it may not be. And then the, and the other part of it too, is they're all on this call in this sort of Brady Bunch-like screen thing. And how many of them are listening? I'm really good in a room. If I'm in a room with people, uh, they're all listening to me. I'm, I'm good at that. But I, I don't, Anyone, no one's good at this. This is really, really hard. There's too many other things buzzing, and other bells going off, and the cat running across the house, and the kid behind them. And I think that salespeople need to understand better how to be more succinct, Mm -hmm. and understand like how to sell into an interrupted and a non-closed environment, and how to understand that it's good for salespeople. It's going to train them to have to better be better communicators. Is what's the right way for me to take advantage of this unusual sales? Interaction, which is not on the phone. It's on a video screen. And um, I, I think that that's a, uh, a new skill that you're going to find people who become really, really adept at this. And I think there's going to be training around selling in a new non, like a, almost a mobile world in a way. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think there's actually an opportunity there for salespeople to emerge just being particularly good at knowing how to manage conversations in this new environment, and that's interesting to me. I think so. These are things I think about about the new world.
0: Yeah, and so let me ask you. Uh, and perhaps this is my my uh, second to last question for you. Sure, sure. Because it's, it's top of mind for me is. Then with what you just said, when do we get back to like the three martini lunches? Because they're mm-hmm. awkward on Zoom. When I when I start and you know, I have my first martini uh, in a meeting, you know, in a in a, in a pitch, it, it's awkward because obviously I'm drinking alone. Uh, when when do we get back to the, when do we get back to three martini lunches? Those are already on the decline.
1: At least you know, in the U.S. I don't, I don't I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about it. Here's what I think: people want lunches. No one would argue that they want it, right? So that's one one factor. If we look at it mathematically, we could say if you did a if you let's say you do 100 of these podcasts, which I suspect you'll do a lot more than that. If you ask this question, everyone will say, "Yeah, man, I'd love to be able to go to lunch again." There's no one's going to say, "No way, I hated lunches." And very few people are going to say that. Most people like that, which to me means it's going to happen because when everybody wants something, we're going to find a way to get back there again. That's entropy, right? We're, we're, we're going to naturally gravitate back towards it. How long is it going to be? You know, it may be sooner than we think. I mean, look, the main reason we're not going to lunches now is simply because in New York, anyway, the restaurants aren't open. You can't, right? But I think if like de Blasio or Cuomo in like a month or maybe January, let's say, all right, restaurants are open again. I think I, the first thing people are going to do is, oh, let's go to lunch. I mean, I'm going to pick up the phone and say, <laughs> meet me for lunch. I want to go to lunch. I want a waiter to come and serve me a steak and talk to you. So I do think that people are going to get back to this. But I think that what's going to happen is there's going to be this surgeons to get back out there again to kind of make up for something I miss. And then we're going to go, you know what? I really don't have to do this as much as I thought. So now I'm only going to do it when it really matters. And I think that's the change that's going to take place. There's going to be an option because I don't have to do it as much anymore. So I'm going to be more judicious about the lunches and meetings that I go to. And that's good too, because that means the lunches and the meetings are going to be better. And I do think that's going to happen. I do think that's going to happen. So I I think in a weird way, this is kind of a reset that's forced some thinking that was probably already like there, but we didn't really have a reason to have to confront it in the way that we uh, are right now.
0: That, that's right. We've had to confront and change this. I think the same is for for conferences. Obviously, I, I you know, I, I live in the event, the event space. Yeah. And the fact is that you sit there going, there is some pent up demand for people to get back together. And yet it really comes down to it's got to be efficient. It's got to work. The value has to be there. And so that's what we have to rebuild from and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Warren, just as a, I'm just curious in terms of, I know the CRO Collective is, is one aspect of what you do. Huh? Uh, I, it might be interesting to hear what else you're up to. And, and again, maybe the best way to kind of contact you. So uh, sure, I sure. could leave a call to action, if you will,
1: with this podcast. Right. I appreciate that. Yeah, so uh, uh, the CRO Collective is an outshoot of my consulting firms and a consulting group, which I've been running for about 10 years now. So basically I act uh, ostensibly as a chief revenue officer, a fractional chief revenue officer for B2B companies. So I'm essentially what I'm trying to do, and you know, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, uh, align companies in ways that are in line with what the CRO collective is attempting to do as the CRO, right? And that entails uh, top-level analysis of assessment of the company's marketing and sales, and how are they going to market, and how are they doing this, and uncovering all those problems that are associated with misalignment and then fixing them. And then I also grow revenue for companies. I have a lot of you know I have a pretty big network and um, I can reach my tentacles into the marketplace and I, I know buyers who are looking for certain products. So if somebody is selling a product that I believe in and I think there's a need for in the marketplace, not only will I help them organize their organizations to be better equipped for the market, but I can also introduce them to people either at the partnership level or at sales to get them some revenue. Very good. Fantastic. Well, I, I really appreciate
0: the time. And again, I think uh, uh, it's, it's given me some thoughts around that particular role. And I look forward to, to, to catching up with you again in person. I, I appreciate you call.
1: having me on, man. I really appreciate being the first, uh, first one. This is great. Good luck to you. Uh, I, I'm sure you're going to be really successful and I look forward to seeing it. And I, I'll say at the end, you gave me the opportunity. You can reach me at either Warren at collective dot com or Warren at zenaconsulting. dot com, and uh, you know you can go to those two websites and you know look for yourself. And uh, Rob, thank you so much for having me. This is, I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. This is really enjoyable. yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is great, fantastic, though.